This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 2001. Now, stop me if you heard this one before, but uh, an elf, a hobbit, and a dwarf walk into a Mordor. And we find out what happens in Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we go through AFI's top 100 films of all time to see if they still hold up, if they're things that are worthy of seeing, and more importantly, if they belong on the list. And before we even get into today's episode, I want to give a big shout out to everyone following along on our Facebook group, the Unspooled Facebook group. They actually have watching parties and they have amazing discussion going on there all the time about the movies that we're doing. I love it so much. It is awesome. I got accused of being a secret lurker in, in, in the Ooh. Lord of the Rings watch this week. Interesting. Well, you know what? We are going to secretly lurk in that Facebook group because coming up when we get to episode 25, we're going to answer your questions. We're going to be a special bonus episode. So uh, there is already a thread where you can ask us questions, and we're going to pick our favorite ones and talk about them on the air. We're also going to be relisting our Top 25 films, and that's coming up in just a couple more episodes. So we're going to have a bunch of new stuff coming up very soon. But make sure you follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and uh, rate and review the podcast, which we always love to hear. Now, Amy, last week we talked about Apocalypse Now. A lot of mixed reaction. Yeah, I will say up front, I took a little bit of grief, and I accept that in the universe because (laughs) I went a little hard on Apocalypse Now. You know, I'm sorry, and I'm not sorry, because I guess what we're doing now is we're talking about watching these movies in the context of now and how they hold up today. And today just happens to be a time when I'm really mad about macho old white men. So I'm sorry about that. 
But here's the thing. This is how I'm viewing films in the lens of 2018. Well, and you should because I think that's part of the podcast in general. We're looking at this list that doesn't really have that much representation across the board. Uh, so I think it is a worthy discussion to have. And I think people online were having the same discussion. How do you judge a movie like this? Is it about the personalities and the behind-the-scene drama or what you're actually seeing on the screen? And are they synonymous at a certain point? You don't it's know. true. It's true. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of films where you can pull them apart. And then I feel like Apocalypse Now is one where they are inextricably linked. What happened on the set is literally why this film is partially considered so important. Because here's one thing I've been thinking about a lot this week is that this AFI list is voted on by people who have great careers in Hollywood. It's mostly people who right. make films. No films are very much in this business. I'm thinking a lot about how this list is voted on by people who are friends with the people on the list. Do you know what I mean? Ooh, yeah. And they're like, it's yeah. Like a fraternity. I, yeah, they're like, I totally remember when Francis came back. I was kind of screwed up. It was really hard on him. I'm definitely voting that higher. I think there is a personal element to this list that is very real. It's not just all based on what's on the screen. Here, I'm going to read something that Angela Irizarry wrote on the Facebook page. And Angela likes Apocalypse Now. She likes it, but she wrote, The point I believe that Amy was trying to make was that we as a society glorify and celebrate behaviors that would never be tolerated by anyone other than a white male. In this group, we talk a lot about how it's a shame that the AFI list isn't very diverse, yet we aren't willing to call out the power structure that allows one group of people to run wild in the fucking jungle while another group is relegated to the sideline. And it's true. I think there is something in this glorification of, yeah, these crazy badasses, which I just want to say, why? <laughs> well, I think it's a good point. I agree. So we're on the same page. And now here are some more outlandish theories about Apocalypse Now. Uh, this is from Craig Falkenham. He goes, I don't know if anyone has made this analogy already, but having watched Apocalypse Now and knowing about all the behind-the-scenes nonsense with Brando's physical appearance and attitude, it reminded me a lot of the physical shark on the set of Jaws. I mean, Spielberg originally intended on showing the shark much differently in the film, but because of all the problems getting the shark to work, he had to film it very differently, and I think most people agree it made for a much better film. Similarly, I think having to shoot Brando in shadow to disguise his girth and limiting his scenes because of his general attitude really works in the film. The character is meant to be this mysterious, larger-than-life figure, and that's what we get in the film. Interesting point. I, I, I always think that things like that always work to your advantage to a certain point because you have to make different choices in the moment. It's true. You can never tell what mistake was actually the blessing. Agreed. And as we said last week, this entire movie is a blessing in disguise. One other um, fun one I read that I liked was from Max Alexander, who wrote, Apocalypse Now is pretty much the Wizard of Oz, right? I mean, the character starts off in the real world and is whisked off to a dreamlike land of bizarre characters. Willard follows a river instead of a brick road that ends at a city in which all the inhabitants worship a false god who appears as a giant floating bald head. There's a little dog, too. There is a little dog, too. Ooh, I love that. That's now, a great one. That theory makes me feel like that little dog isn't just there for the awe. I know. It's a larger thing at play. Well, here's something that somebody said on Twitter that I liked a lot. It was at Mr. Pictures Film. And Mr. Pictures is a teacher. And they said, the first writing prompt I used to teach in my college English 103 classes was, quote, is Apocalypse Now anti or pro-war? And so he would throw that writing prompt onto the class, and he said that his class would watch the film and that the responses were always 50% yes and 50% no. It's fascinating. I mean, and I think that that's how we kind of came away from it, too. It, it, it's, a, it's a debatable point, and I think that that makes the movie kind of a little bit more interesting or at least watchable because you can kind of pick the way that you want to view the film. Now, we are going to be talking about uh, another kind of epic film, another journey this week. It's uh, Lord of the Rings. And last week, we asked you to come up with your own 
Lord of the Rings creature, a, a character that you would create that would inhabit Middle-earth and what the powers of this creature might be in a very succinct fashion. So let's take a listen to some of those. Greetings, Paul and Amy. This is Chris Daria from Fort Worth doing my best Christopher Lee impression. And I shall tell you about the myth of the Flooby Spawn. Born in the murkiness of the Flooby Dooby Swampadoo, these tiny little creatures resemble rutabagas with legs, and they shall gnaw off your fingers if you dare to pick them up and eat them. My name is Seamus Weedbottom. I am a hobbit from the Shire. And I hook Gandalf up with the hobbit leaf that he loves. My monster from Lord of the Rings is called the Smegman. Uh, he smells real bad, um, and he's real unsightly to look at. Uh, and his mortal enemy, uh, what would kill him, is uh, rain. I think if I'm going to name a creature, it's going to be the Propanosaur. Obviously, it breathes fire powered by... Okay. Um, um, I wish somebody had said my cat. <laughs> I mean, I know people haven't met my cat, but I just think my cat would be so good. And what's your cat's name? Wolf, with an umlaut oh. over the over the U. Ooh, then they can definitely kind of fit in that Lord of the Rings role. <laughs> All right, Amy, are you ready to get into it? Am I ever? All right, Amy. So, Fellowship of the Ring comes out in 2001. It's 50 on the AFI top 100 list, directed by Peter Jackson. Uh, it stars Elijah Wood, Viggo Mortensen, uh, Sean Bean, Dominic Monaghan, uh, Sean Astin, Ian McKellen, John Rhys-Davies, Orlando Bloom, uh, Liv Tyler, Hugo Weaving, Kate Blanchett, Christopher Lee, Andy Serkis. I mean, it's a veritable who's who of uh, early 2000 cinema. Can you tell us the plot of the film? Yeah, this is the story of a younger generation of hobbits having a pickup after their older hobbit shit when they have screwed up everything by taking this ring home to the Shire. And now these ring race, Sauron, Sauron, everybody is coming after this ring because it holds the power that can make or break whether or not the universe lives or dies. But, Amy, don't you think maybe they were supposed to pick up that ring? Just like Gandalf said, maybe it was all part of a whole plan. Uh, this movie is... Massive in backstory and small in plot, if that makes sense, right? I think when you look at the plot of this movie, it's two hours and 50 minutes about. It's big. It's it's an epic. I feel like this movie is a perfect companion piece to Apocalypse Now because it's a it's a very similar journey. It's it's in many respects going up river uh, or maybe side to river. But there uh, is a river. There is definitely a river. It is. Big in scope and small in story, in a way. I, yes. I'm always surprised by how much of this movie I forgot happened. Like, oh, yeah, there's that thing where Liv Tyler is like, do I give up being an immortal elf because I really want to bone Viggo Mortensen? And every time that scene shows up, I'm like, oh, yeah, completely forgot that that was even a factor. Well, it's interesting because this is one-third of a film, and it's not like the way that I think we see a lot of trilogies. I think that Star Wars wasn't known to be a trilogy when it came out. Like, this was known to be a trilogy. It was written as one giant script. I mean, basically, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh presented this screenplay for two movies, believing that no studio would ever greenlight a trilogy. And at first, only Miramax showed interest, but then they said the screenplay would have to be cut to fit the entire story into one movie. So as a last-ditch attempt, Jackson pitched the film to New Line, who asked for the screenplay to be turned into a trilogy. So... 
Thank you, New Line, for having the foresight, and probably it was financial foresight to be like, holy shit, like if this is a trilogy, we'll make triple the amount of money. But can you imagine if this was one film or two films? I mean, it would suffer simply because it, there's not enough space to tell that story. Yeah, I mean, awkward conversation, but you know, like Weinstein really wanted it to be shorter. Weinstein made Peter Jackson's career. Weinstein was such a monster in so many ways uh, that I heard that there's even an orc in one of the later films that looks like Weinstein. Yes, I heard that, yes. Yeah, and, and so I love like hearing all these like arguments and contracts and like I think Weinstein was really bullying them to make it shorter like intensively like you have two days to agree I mean to this. he was notorious for that kind of behavior of the like just taking over a cut yeah it is because of the trilogy and because it's so massive it does feel like it can breathe and you're not rushing through story I think you see the problem of that in in the Hobbit uh, trilogy that came out more recently but this is a movie that I feel like is so often copied, but it misses everything that this movie has. It's like there's tremendous backstory. There's amazing kind of fantastical creatures and characters and CGI, but it all works. Yeah, I mean, maybe what we should start off even just asking is like, why the Fellowship of the Ring and not the other two? Because here's sort of how it breaks down. Fellowship of the Ring is the first one. I'll be honest. It's my personal favorite. Mm-hmm. The second one, Two Towers, is the one that makes the most money. Like, that's right. the biggest hit of everything. And the third one, Return of the King, is the one that won all the Oscars. It, yes. It, it won as many Oscars as Titanic and as Ben-Hur. Like, it is the tiebreaker. So now that we are talking about Lord of the Rings trilogy in full, we have now talked about the three biggest Oscar winners ever. Yes. You know, it's so interesting. These films share uh, a very unique DNA. These are epic, massive films. I was thinking this movie is the perfect kind of merger between, you know, the epic nature of Ben-Hur, the journey of Apocalypse Now, and the CGI of Titanic. I mean, it's got it all in here. But you're right. I feel like, can it be viewed as one piece? Yeah, because when I see Fellowship of the Ring on the AFI list, I just see it as shorthand for the entire trilogy. Yes. Which I don't see when you have, say, Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 mm-hmm. separately on the list, or even Star Wars on the list. Right. I don't feel like Star Wars is necessarily a shorthand for Jedi, you know? No, but this one feels like they are one cohesive piece that just happened to have... Uh, you know, about a year break in between each one. Yeah, that's always been my theory as to why Return of the King won all the Oscars is they were just sort of waiting. Like, like what if they had given him all of them for the first one? Right. And then, like, they had, it, it made it look like they went downhill from there. It was kind of like the curtain call, you know? And it's, you know, it's like, all right, you did it. It's all over, and now we'll, we'll reward you. <laughs> it's it's an amazing feat, this film, because the— Because perf- everybody wears gigantic fake feet the whole time? <laughs> Yes, the feet are amazing. <laughs> and they were also tortured. Should we even just jump ahead and talk about the feet for two oh, seconds? Oh, yes, please. Do you want to hear about how much the hobbits hated wearing these gigantic feet? Because they wore them basically like you're putting on like swim fins. Yeah, they were. I mean, I remember from watching the many documentaries on the first DVDs that I bought of this film, uh, th- how painstaking it was. Here, th- this is great. The hobbits would always start early because we had the prosthetics in the morning. Uh, our makeup took mostly about two hours. Glue was painted to the bottom of your feet. Then you would slide into these prosthetic feet. They would then hair dry uh, glue around the seams of your feet and paint them with airbrushes and paintbrushes. Standing up at five in the morning and the whole time we're begging to sit down, but they don't let us. 
<laughs> they, they couldn't sit and have their feet glued on because the way that their ankles would sort of be bent in the wrong position. Oh. So they had to literally just stand up when I'm sure they'd rather be in bed. Oh, that sounds terrible. And this is a movie where the pain doesn't stop there. Every one of these people had issues. Orlando Bloom, his eyes changed color throughout the film because he couldn't wear the blue contact lenses every day because they would damage his retinas. You have John Reese davies who is wearing this nose and beard that severely uh, affected his skin, so much so that he couldn't be in makeup two days in a row. You know, uh, everyone <laughs> I think here... Orlando Bloom got kicked by a horse or uh, someone chipped a tooth? I mean, of course, because you're, you're pulling out these giant swords. You're doing this insane... It, this movie is a movie that is built to hurt people, but thankfully it was shot in New Zealand, and I feel like uh, a lot of people weren't on set to make sure that, you know, they always say like, oh, I hope the animals are treated humanely. Here, I don't think the actors were treated humanely. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, when we talked about Titanic, we were talking about it in the context of it might be the first film that got really troll attacked. Right. To me, Fellowship of the Ring is the very first film that I feel like I saw get obsessively just researched to death on the internet. This one and then also the Star Wars prequels. Like, to me, they're kind of of a piece. You well, know, the th- OneRing.net and people researching everything about it and getting crazy. And the idea back then... When before they had pulled it off, that how insane it is that they gave this budget and this project to Peter Jackson. Well, this is why I think this movie works. Because you have this director who at this point in his career is an interesting guy who has like really weird ideas. He's not fully mainstream, right? I mean, it's- He's not even close to mainstream. Have you seen Meet Meet the the Feebles? Feebles? Yes, 100%. And The Frighteners is so weird. It's like, he's this- unique voice. And I think what he does is he's able to capture everything that's interesting about this world. The humor, and that's one thing I want to talk about too, is really on display here in a very natural way. I mean, you have Ian McKellen kind of doing these like double takes, like when he's trying to get into the elf minds of Moria and he, and he does his big spell. He's like, meh, didn't work. And you know, and it's <laughs> You've like- You've got this like ridiculous slapstick one that I like. It's a very dumb sound cue. I'm just going to play it because yeah. this is when- I think it's Mary or Pippin. I always kind of space. I think it's Mary knocks over a bone and it falls into a well. And it is basically like the longest drum roll joke ever. They are coming. I'm sorry, but that is the most ridiculous vaudeville joke ever. But there's something really charming about it. And I think that's what this movie has in spades. It's, it is charming. It, It feels like the way that you feel in reading a book. Like you're just in this world and I think you can get away with jokes like that and humor like that because he's built up enough goodwill that you know like oh yeah this movie is amazing on all levels it's not it's not cheesy when you see it I don't know it made me laugh when I saw that it's like <laughs> it's a funny moment oh I also just like the cojones of being like yeah this movie is almost three hours what if we spent a full minute on this well joke <laughs> by the way we say three hours that is the version that they let him release in the cinema like he had this extended cut that like 
there was no way in his mind that that extended cut was not coming out somewhere because it is it is a full like another hour like he this guy no one else could make this thing that's why I'm a little bit even hesitant about the Amazon series because Philip Boyens and, and and Peter Jackson just got this world and created this world and made it so inviting to an audience that I, I I wonder if you can if you can actually recapture that without it being them putting their stamp on it. That's funny because I just wonder if they can ever really leave it. You mm-hmm. know, it feels like they created this world and they've just moved in. It, I, you know, the right. idea that he was like, you know what, I have to make a Hobbit movie now, that he can't be done with this because right. Peter Jackson is a big old weirdo. I mean, you and I cracked like a very fast Meet the Feebles joke. Yes. I think we really need to give people context for what a wild shift The Lord of the Rings is from Meet the Feebles. So I'm going to just play a fairly outrageous clip from Meet the Feebles if you have little kids around Maybe turn the radio down just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so Meet the Feebles is a musical starring puppets. It is as outrageous as possible. It is very mental. And what you're going to be mentally picturing as you hear this lovely little song number is a puppet on a stage doing a giant net dance number. Take it away, puppets. I know you can't even see what's happening here, but this is essentially Dirty Muppets before there were Dirty Muppets. Before there were Happy Time Murders, there is this. And it's so bizarre. I remember hearing about this and ordering the DVD from my Kim's video when I was in New York and and watching it and just being blown away. It's sexual. It's weird. It's and I And I believe in many respects that... People like Peter Jackson, who are these amazing weirdos, uh, are great at telling stories because genre is so based in story. Like in, in creating something like the opening of this film, he gets through so much history so efficiently, so cleanly that I'm not like confused on how did this get made. We're always joking like there's so much backstory before these movies start and you're like, what, what's even happening? And here you've brought so easily into a world with so many insane variables, but it's just doled out so perfectly and illustrated so cleanly that I don't feel confused by anything. Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting about Peter Jackson as this weird, weird brain who can write a puppet musical about sodomy and then also do this gigantic Oscar-winning monumental epic is that he's basically, to me, mimicking um, Ralph Bakshi, who did it before. Yes. Ralph Bakshi, who did, like, the animated Lord of the Rings in the 70s, but also did the X-rated cartoon Fritz the Cat. It's fascinating to me that that is, like, a specific DNA of person, and it replicated itself. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I'm so glad that he actually got to make this movie because, you know, uh, at one point, uh, the Beatles wanted to make Lord of the Rings. Like, that, this is like the craziest thing. Like, Paul McCartney was going to be Frodo, Ringo was going to be Sam, George was going to be Gandalf, and John Lennon was going to be Gollum. 
and they wanted Stanley Kubrick to direct it. First of all, I'm first in line for that movie. I mean, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, uh, second of all, I really like that my favorite Beatle matches up with my favorite character, which is I'm a straight up Ringo Sam girl. I love, I love Sam. I love Sam. Uh, Sam, Sam is, is the best. He's the heart of the movie to me. Sam is the guy who's like, I don't even have to do this, but I'm going to go the hardest way possible because I love my friend. <sighs> it's so great. Uh, uh, Kubrick, of course, declined this project and went on to make 2001. Stupid mistake, bro. Yeah, way to go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but because after that kind of moment, Tolkien, who still had the rights to his books, he just shut it down. He's like, we're not doing this. So luckily, the film was kind of untouchable for a long period of time. And and I would say, thankfully, in the 70s, because this movie is prime for a 70s kind of uh, filmmaker. And I feel like it was better served uh, here when it came out, when the technology could actually match it and it could feel so much grander. And, and, and it feels, this is kind of one of the most impressive, you know, mixes of practical and CGI on such a large scale. I mean, these worlds feel so so uh, detailed and, and beautiful. Yeah, to me, the scene where you really realize, oh, they pulled it off, is when you see Frodo jump into Gandalf's wagon right at the beginning. Yes! And you're like, that is two live people, both ambulatory, neither one a CG character, somehow making that scene work. And I love it. You know, what, what, what he does the whole rest of the movie, Peter Jackson, is he's always just screwing with camera angles so that people are tall or short. Crazy. He's like, the camera's up on the roof, the camera's down by the ring, the camera's over here. And just distorting your view of how big people are, how wild anything looks, it's its absolutely visually crazy. I mean, one of the scenes that I love in that way is when the fellowship is being formed and they're all around the table where the ring is in center. You see all the different heights of everybody and they all it, – it, I just feel like there's a lot of care and thought into every little detail. And it feels – Kubrickian in that level, like it, but it's more fun if that makes a sense. In that level of obsessiveness, yes, yeah, it feels very obsessive. This feels like an obsessive film. Maybe I should say here that I understand Lord of the Rings obsession a bit, not me personally, but mm -hmm. my mother is very serious. If my mother has like one trivia contest in San Antonio where she right. lives about the Lord of the Rings, she she has made a point of saying the only question she's ever lost was one about war because she kind of zones out on war stuff. Okay, yeah. She doesn't care that much. My mother has a hobbit. She's Eleanor the Hobbit. I love this. Eleanor is uh, Sam's daughter. Wait, wait. What do you mean your mom has a hobbit? My mom has a hobbit. My mom picked out a hobbit. And that is who she is. But, like, there's not a physical hobbit. Like, she's just like, I am now a hobbit? Yeah, my mother has a hobbit outfit. You know, it's like a long, tasteful little skirt. She has a little apron. She has a little a vest. Whoa. Yeah. I did not know. Right. So, so your mom, like, cosplays then as a hobbit. I should find this picture where she's hanging out with, like, a Gandalf and, like, a Frodo when they're going to go see one of the movies. I think they're going to go see, uh, I think they're seeing King. Wow. They all dressed up. They went to the theater and my mom was her hobbit. My mom was Eleanor the Hobbit. I know what it's like to grow up in the household of a person who has, like, 70 different hardcover copies of this and is crazy. And, like, as a journalist, the one rule I have is I never ask anybody for photos or autographs. I think mm -hmm. it's horrible. Right. The one time I broke it is for Christmas. I had Peter Jackson on the press tour for Lovely Bones sign my mom's hobbit. Oh, that's awesome. Was he willing to do it? Oh, he was totally willing to do it. And I think he even inscribed it to Eleanor. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I think that also this movie being shot in New Zealand, we talked about it a little bit earlier, uh, 
really did help the film. You know, first of all, it's a countryside that feels relatively unexplored. So everything that you see feels new and different. I think that that's kind of a thing that Star Wars has really taken in the new versions of the franchise where you're, and even in the old, you're just seeing things that that are practical, that are real locations, that but they just look magical. I mean, they, 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 yeah. you don't even have to do that much to the set. It's like getting really high and watching Planet Earth or something and being yeah. like, whoa, this planet's amazing. <laughs> you said hi, and I'm going to let you in on my weird journey that I took on this movie. So I'm watching it, and I've seen this movie so many times. I've seen it in this theater. I've seen the extended cuts. I've owned the DVDs. So I'm just watching it now, and I'm watching it in a way where I'm just sort of looking at it, and I'm like, this movie is kind of a metaphor for addiction. Think of the hobbits. They're living in the Shire. They're just drugged out all the time. They're partying. They're eating second meals. And then they're like, you know what? We got to get out of the Shire. We're done with this. Like, we have to get rid of all of our stuff. And the ring is drugs. It's like a big bag of Coke. And it's like, let's get it out of here. And every time people come close to the ring, they're like, I want to wear that ring. I want to do that Coke. I want to smoke that weed. They got to throw it into the pit, which is like a giant toilet. And basically what I'm saying is Lord of the Rings is like a modern day Sid and Nancy. And that's how I looked at it. They're all drug addicts on a road trip. That's why when anyone wants to put on that ring, they just freak out and get that like large Marge face. We're like, oh, give me that weed. Stupidest, stupidest metaphor for what I think this movie is. But after you've seen it like nine times, I feel like you can dictate your own theory on the movie. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody freak out that way about weed, but whatever they're oh, yeah. smoking, I'll take it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> That's cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sauron's eye is, like, totally bloodshot. Like, man, what have we been up to? Like, oh, we're <laughs> crazy now. And I do actually feel like Bilbo Baggins' birthday um, seems like kind of a summer camp movie. Like, the mm-hmm. kids are getting restless, and they're dancing, and like, go flirt with that girl. Oh, my God, I can't go ask, I'll yeah. go ask her dance. We got to do dishes. In fact, I even think Bilbo is a little bit drunk. Wait, listen to this. Today is my 111th birthday. Yeah. I do think he's drunk. I mean, I feel like this is a this is a town where they're eating like you know they're Taco Belling it. They're doing like third and fourth meal. Like they you know they're they really are you know this fun loving partying culture. You know they're uh, I would say they're just a loving you know we don't hurt anybody. We farm. We have fun. We play. And I think that that's what makes the journey so kind of interesting. Is you know you're following this you know this person who's never really had to care or do anything, have this great, intense responsibility. And and there's some malevolence in there, though, don't you think? That the hobbits, to me, I find the hobbits to be, like, people who don't vote. You know? Right. They're I so like that, apolitical. Yeah. They're like, we're just chilling out here. Like, we don't care. We don't want to leave. We don't want to go anywhere. They're we don't want to do They're just in their drug den. I'm going to continue this analogy. Yeah. No, no. No, but but they're, yeah. like, the, the ring race show up at one of the hobbit towns, and they're like, Baggins? And he's like, oh, it's over there. He yeah. doesn't try to stand up and help his friend. Everybody's a little bit lazy, a little bit self-interested in the Hobbit world. Well, and it's so interesting because the threat is an object. I mean, it ultimately is an object. I mean, yes, the Eye of Sauron and you have, you know, uh, Sauron. But the 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 villain that's chasing them ultimately is with them at all times. And it's the ring. And the way the ring is so beautifully shot as this beautiful object, but this intimidating object, the way the sound design goes, like there's that scene in the beginning when the ring drops to the floor and you hear it, it just has a literal weight, but it just, you're like, whoa, this, I've never seen an object be 
the villain, you know? Paul, I pulled that sound clip because oh, really? I love it so much. When the ring falls, because it is that little thing where you realize this does not have the weight of an ordinary object. Right. Whatever this is, is absolutely foreign. And he pulls it off in the sound design. I mean, even like even in watching that clip, it doesn't even slide off the hand. It feels like it's weighted in his hand. Can I ask you a dumb question? Yeah. Help me understand what the ring is. Like, I understand what it is ultimately. Like, so there's all these rings that are given out, uh, and but this ring can rule them all. In a weird way, I think you feel it more on an emotional level than you understand it on an analytical level. Because because there are these things where people's faces are turning into demons when they're getting around it. And it's like, is that Sauron coming out through them? If so, you know, like, there's so many things. Like, when you put on the ring, you're invisible, but then you're also in the spirit world. Yeah, it's wild. Like, this time when I was watching the ring... Honestly, there's this speech that they give right when they get to the town, the town, and I pulled it because it's them talking about how the ring race got formed because they wanted the ring so much, because mm-hmm. they wanted to be near the power of the ring so yeah. much. And I swear to God, maybe I'm crazy because this is, like, the only thing on my mind in, right now, but I was thinking, like, oh, it's, like, term limits for senators. Like, I don't know why these, like, 80-year-olds keep running to be in office right. except that they just need to be in office because well, there's being nothing in office else to is, do. This, yeah. is this power. And so I was listening to this speech, and I was thinking how it makes me think of Mitch McConnell. They were once men. Great kings of men. Then Sauron the deceiver gave to them nine rings of power. Blinded by their greed, they took them without question, one by one, falling into darkness. Now they're slaves to his will. But it's just it's just on my mind because I'm trying to understand why people do evil things for a thing I don't understand. Well, I think what you're talking about is the attraction of power. And power makes you feel vital. It keeps you young. It you know it keeps you relevant. And you know I think when you see Bilbo has aged so much in a short period of time away because he's been away from the ring, it is you know a metaphor for the idea that like your your life catches up to you when you don't have power. It's like there's nothing left for you to do. And I think that's why this book and why this film is so kind of universally loved because it's everyone can get that. You know I, I think on the the basis of levels, it's like. You think, well, could I have that ring? And you, when you see Kate Blanchett like wanting it, and she seems to be the most even keeled of them all, you know, and everyone seems righteous and fair, and they all succumb to power. And I feel like absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, that's that's really the undercurrent of this of the this film. You know, everyone is susceptible to it. It's true that there is no real distinction when you're the owner of the ring between being a good person or a bad person. There is no good person owning the ring. No. As soon as you own it, you are down the downward spiral to evil. And what's so interesting about the way that Peter Jackson gets all of this across is, you know, he does those little, like, shock flashes where Mm -hmm. Bilbo suddenly looks like Batboy on the cover of the Weekly World News. Yeah. Or where Galadriel just looks pale and evil and her eyes get dark and there's a crazy, like a photo developing slowly in the chemical processor look to her. I mean, Peter Jackson is a guy who made a bunch of horror movies before this. He made like gore films and splatter films. And he uses all of these techniques in Fellowship of the Ring. Like this movie has so many horror elements to it. You know, it's really shot like a horror movie half the time in its crazy canted angles and in the tension and in the dark hallways that people walk down. He's using everything he can to make the story feel as dark and creepy as possible. 
I totally agree with you. This movie feels so infused with genre that I would say it even feels like uh, an old serial. It's chapterized. I mean, you go from chapter to chapter. If you watch this, you know, 20 minutes at a time, it's still very fulfilling because it does have a beginning, middle, and end. And I know a lot of people say like, oh, the last film, uh, you know, Return of the King has like, you know, so many endings. But this also, like you think the film should maybe end when Gandalf dies. All right, no, you think that the film should maybe end when they, you know, go back off on their journey. You know, there's multiple endings here. It's not a bad thing, but it it doesn't play like your traditional film, I guess. Yeah, you know what it felt like to me, honestly? And then I went and found out a fact that made it make perfect sense mm-hmm. to me. Peter Jackson's favorite film when he was growing up was something we've talked about, King Kong. Oh, interesting. He right. loved King Kong. And when he was like eight, nine, ten, he would be in his backyard with a Super 8 camera making his own little versions of King Kong. And I thought like once I really put that together, I'd already even made this little note where I was like, oh, man, when they fight like the giant cave troll, the cave troll sounds exactly like King Kong. Uh-huh. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Wait, let's hear a little bit of cave troll. He could, like, buy his own ticket in Hollywood after the Hobbit films. He was like, I will make King Kong. But now my question is, why does King Kong and the Hobbit fail in the same areas where this succeeds? It Nothing has really changed. He's still with his partner. He is using the same, you know, technology. What is it that makes those films not as epic or universally embraced. I mean, I have this very dark and weird inside baseball theory onto Mm. why the Hobbit films really, really tanked. Yeah. But you know that he released The Hobbit in also a new format. He did it in 2K and then in 4K, where you can see just crazy detail in everything. So what happened is they offered it to all of us critics in LA, like, do you want to come and see the first Hobbit movie? Right. And the very first one they had was 3D 4K. And if you have never seen a 3D movie in 4K, like separately, they're both really overwhelming. Right. Together, people felt like they were having like a tiny bit of a heart attack. Oh, wow. It was so stressful because it was 3D, but you could also see, you could see too much. You could literally right. see like the glue in the in the dwarves' beards oh, when they're wow. all sitting around like yelling at Bilbo and eating for like an hour. All of the critics, when we got outside after the, after the Hobbit, we were all standing in the Warner Brothers lot just sort of losing our minds, like blinking and squinting and like, what did we just see? It was so intense, our eyes yeah. melted. And that was the first press screening. So the very first press screening was everybody coming out of The Hobbit and being like, what the fuck just happened? What hmm. did I see? And nobody could even pay attention to the movie. because right, because they were so caught up in that. Because you're so caught up in the techniques. And I know that that is the weirdest thing, but I swear to God, that first batch of rev- reviews kind of set the tone that this movie wasn't that great. And I, if they had not done it in 3D, 4K... I swear, I think Rotten Tomatoes would be like 10 points higher. I Well, I mean, look, I would go and say to you that if he made a Hobbit film, a two-hour and 50-minute Hobbit movie. A single Hobbit film. It would have been fantastic. It's a movie where he's falling victim to excess. And this is where my issue with Ben-Hur was. It felt like for a small enough plot, like we had too much movie. And here, it actually kind of works. And I think maybe it works because of that, what I was saying, like that chapterization of it, the, the serialization of it. You're you're kind of watching these little chunks, and they're moving with a pace. But I don't find that in, in any of the Hobbit films or even in King Kong. It doesn't, it doesn't have a drive to it as much as this. Uh, not to get on a Peter Jackson bashing. It just – it's interesting how sometimes the alchemy of the project, the cast – 
everything works to make something great. Well, yeah, and I think there is something to this idea of hubris and wanting to be on someone's side. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to root for Peter Jackson when The Hobbit films came out because right. I thought it was insane that the Meet the Feebles guy got this budget, that he was doing his clear dream project. You just knew it was yeah. his dream, that he was risking everything. New Line was risking everything. Everybody was risking everything on this film working. And then it did, which was awesome. But with The Hobbit, you're like, why would you make this three movies? You st- it feels like a cash grab in a way right. that I don't think you could get past. Well, Paul, I feel like this is a good episode because there are not a lot of gigantic, crazy CGI blah, 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 blahs on this list. Uh, we should talk to somebody from the CGI world. We should really hear about somebody who was there at the time working Lord of the Rings. Yeah, this is an amazing get for us. Uh, Brett has 20 years of experience in visual effects and 15 years spent in the world of performance capture. He actually sits on the board of the Motion Capture Society and worked at Weta Digital, which is the company that did all of the special effects for Lord of the Rings. And uh, he's basically just... You know, badass expert who's worked on films like uh, Warcraft, Spider-Man Homecoming, Deadpool 2, Ready Player One, Elysium, and, of course, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Well, then, let's introduce him. Hello, Brett Ineson. So, Brett, tell us what you did on Lord of the Rings. On Lord of the Rings, I was a uh, member of the motion edit department. Um, and so we were the people who uh, would work with the motion capture of Andy Circus. Um, to put it on the uh, Gollum character model uh, before it would go into the next stage of animation and lighting and rendering. Take us back to when you're working on this film and really tell us how groundbreaking Gollum was in terms of what we were able to do at that time. I think Gollum was probably the very first CG character that people could just watch and and it was just believable so they would kind of forget that it was computer generated uh, and rendered character uh, and just accept it as any other character in the film like a live action character Um, so I don't think that had been done to that level in the past you sort of always uh, you could be taken out uh, of the movie you know the whole suspension of belief It sounds like you're talking about the uncanny valley, right? Like, could you describe that for people, what that means? It's that gap of fantasy versus reality in a way where you look at the face and especially to the layman, they don't really know why it's weird or it doesn't look right, but they just know there's there's something wrong about it. It's a difficult problem to solve because every single person on earth, whether they know it or not, is an expert in the way a face looks. You know, our, our brains are designed to read every little minute nuance of a facial expression. There's so much information there. So recreating that with computer graphics has been a really tough problem to solve. It sounds like you're saying that we all as humans have our own visual animation software running in our brains all the time, judging. I'd say that's exactly right. Wait, so you're telling me that you're a guy who works with computers, but what you do a lot of is study just real-life footage of humans? Like, what are you noticing that I wouldn't know as a layman to see? Like, what's the stuff that you're able to pinpoint that we are picking up without knowing we're picking up? With our job, a lot of times we won't necessarily see it because we're trying to record millions and millions of uh, points on the face, so we have all that data. If we're going to go back, um, you know, X amount of years to... Uh, Gollum and the Lord of the Rings, 
Um, that kind of technology wasn't available yet. So in terms of the Golem space, that was really relied upon by the skills of the animators. So they would uh, frame by frame study um, the reference video of Mandy Circus, who the actor who played the character, and they would study each muscle movement and recreate it by hand. I'm trying to really think about that. It seems like one of the hardest things to animate would be the fingers. A lot of work would go into very few seconds of footage to get the fingers right. So in, in our team in Motion Edit, we would spend a lot of time on fingers. Of course, the uh, animation team, they would spend a lot of time on that as well. You know, we did capture the fingers, um, but there's still quite a bit of work by hand. Um, the face in that movie was largely uh, all done by, by hand. So that's just pure animator skill. Tell me what our eyes are doing. Are our pupils expanding and contracting? What do you, what do you see that I don't know what to see? Oh, definitely. You know, and you know, of course, there's everything around it to the muscles of the face, how the uh, the eyebrows and the eyelids, and um, you know, when you're when you're mad or sad, um, what you're trying to convey will come through the eyes, and and certainly pupil dilation is part of it. And what I'm so curious about, though, is I know that this motion capture technology moves along so fast. It gets better and better exponentially. So the technology when you were making the third one, was it already better than when they made the first one? Yeah, you know, it really was. You know, what a digital had to um, build some of that technology along the way. So what they were doing in the first two kind of informed the development process. So uh, a lot of the tools we used in the third film were were built during the second one and sort of probably finally realized in the third film so that the teams were able to get their work done. I mean, when I hear that, I imagine being like a perfectionist and working on the third one and being like, man, I almost wish we could go back two years and redo Gollum a little bit with what we have now. I mean, do you feel like that when you go back and watch the stuff that you animated in the early 2000s compared to now, thinking like, man, I wish I had another crack at Gollum with everything we have now in 2018? You know, I think... I think that about a lot of projects, tell you the truth. And, you know, with Gollum, I just don't think that way. I kind of feel like uh, he was so ahead of its time. Um, it turned out, I believe, better than anyone could have hoped and expected. And I just feel like that guy stands the test of time. What's one of your favorite effects in, in CG? Because mine is probably... The T-1000 from Terminator 2? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Probably for me, um, one of the most remarkable is going to be Jurassic Park. Uh, the first one, obviously. Um, computer graphics were just emerging. Um, you know, they've been used in films, of course, before that. Um, and probably to smaller bite-sized pieces and, and uh, tinier effects that weren't that remarkable. Um, but the Jurassic Park dinosaurs with so many living, breathing creatures throughout every shot, that just hadn't been done well before. You, you also went on and worked on Warcraft. I was wondering if you could talk about the difference in the two types of orcs that we have, the Lord of the Rings orcs and the Warcraft orcs. You know, I'm not sure what the cultural difference are between them, but the way, the way they were shot is uh, certainly different. Um, you know, Warcraft had the advantage of uh, being so many years later, 
So those orcs were actually shot live on set during um, principal photography. So when you would uh, stand on the Warcraft set, you would see, say, 10 knights uh, that are practical. They're people in, in tin outfits uh, fighting 10 people in motion capture suits. And what we would do there is we would, in real time, we're able to um, retarget the actor's animation to the orc characters. And so when the director looks through the lens of the camera, he'll actually see the orcs in their 10 to 12 foot size fighting these these knights in real time. It seems like when that's happening, it would be really hard to lose track of what is reality and what isn't. Well, I have to say, you know, a lot of times in the business, you're just kind of working and, and it's uh, business as usual. Um, but standing on that set, watching the orcs and knights fight in real time blew my mind. So I can only imagine how it was for people who weren't used to this type of technology. I mean, these actors, when they're covered in these sensors, how many sensors are we talking about? Uh, it depends on what you're doing, but it's an average of about 60. So what we try and do is we try and track, uh, you know, the position and rotation of each limb segment. And um, typically in an isolated uh, object, you will want three or four uh, markers on there at least. Um, because it's a human body, we do know things about how the human body can move. We know, uh, you know, your forearm can really only move on one axis and things like that. So we can strategically place those markers to use less than that per segment. Uh, so there is a real strategy into how that works. And over, you know, it's been kind of iterated over the uh, last 20 years into, into the best ways to achieve that. Uh, can the actors, when they're all rigged up like this, can they also just wander off the set and go get a coffee? Uh, they can do. Yeah. Yep. There's, there's no problem. Everything's wireless. So, you know, in Warcraft, those were active markers. So there's little LEDs in them. Um, so they have a battery pack and they can go uh, They can go wherever they want. In, in a lot of mocap shoots, uh, the markers are what we call passive, which just means they're essentially a little rubber ball with um, retroreflective tape on them. This might be a random question, and I'm sorry, but it just occurred to me. But, like, bear with me. If one of those actors, all rigged up, wandered off the set and, like, committed a crime, and he was still all rigged up, would you be able to use that as evidence to know where he went and what he did? Uh, not with this technology, because we need to see them with cameras. Ah. Um, but, that you know, it's funny you say that. We've actually worked on a couple different TV shows where the... Um, where a crime was committed on the mocap stage where the cameras could actually see them. And uh, the only evidence they had was the, the digital movement of the markers. Wait, what? What happened? The, the one TV show uh, that I recall last was a show called Motive, uh, filmed here in Vancouver. And uh, um, one of the actors was um, uh, murdered on the stage. Uh, he worked for a video game company as part of the story. And um, there wasn't video evidence of it, but the motion capture system was turned on. So they, so what there was was these uh, sort of marker cloud of dots floating around in 3D space, but they could see the, the murder and the, the body being dragged away. Now I'm picturing a world where we all get mo-capped and we're just watched all the time. <laughs> well, I think that's not far from reality. 
you know, the future of motion capture is not recording markers, but it's recording uh, the 3D surface of, of everything that cameras see. So um, much like video, except for uh, you'd have uh, sort of millions of points where you can kind of spin the camera around after the fact. Wow. Like we'd be sprayed with something and they could tell where we are? Well, you're, you're, it's just uh, it's just light bouncing back into the camera, really. So, where do you, where are we with the Uncanny Valley today? Do you think we've nailed it? I think we've nailed it for smaller, very expensive uh, shots or sequences. I don't think we've nailed it in the ability to do it for a price point for massive volume, but we're really close. Does it ever freak you out? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it freaks me out. You know, I've seen, um, you know, a lot of people have seen this stuff going around the internet where they'll take uh, world leaders and these these guys are, there's video of them seemingly saying stuff uh, they never said. I've seen those, yeah. Like, they'll have Obama saying that he hates white people or something. Yeah, yeah. So there's the, the nefarious uh, opportunities are pretty extreme. Yeah, it seems amazing that like even non-specialists like you are able to pull that off and then put things on Twitter. I mean, it, it's this technology is so usable now. It is. It really is. What do we do? How do we learn to trust what we see? Um, yeah, I don't know if we can, uh, if it's going to be learning to trust what we see or learning not to trust what we see. Um, the reality is there that anything can be faked. Wow. Well, Brett, this has all been super interesting. If I am talking to the real Brett and not an animated simulation. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on on Spool. Let's talk about this cast. I mean, this cast from top to bottom is absolutely amazing. I mean, I, I believe that this movie kind of thrust Ian McKellen into uh, a role that I think, you know, or, brought, or popularized Ian McKellen. It definitely boosted up Orlando Bloom. Viggo Mortensen, I think, becomes a big star after this movie. Yeah, I don't know if I'd seen Viggo before. This. Yeah, no, I mean, Viggo Mortensen, even in the beginning, didn't want to do this movie. He was convinced by his son uh, to accept the role. And then he started to really get, like, very into the character and he started to view that his character's sword was his character. And there's something so cool about this. On the documentary, I remember seeing this. He would carry a sword around with him wherever he was. So like while he was just in the towns in New Zealand, he had this big sword. And again, these characters are so well-defined without getting into all their backstory or anything at all. Like it's the actors who I think really are popping to make these characters uh, just feel immediately lived in. Yeah, I mean, the one that really stands out to me is Elijah Wood because over the course of the films, he does less and less talking. I mean, he's almost silent by halfway through this film. Yeah, You know, he's like, I'm talkative and fun and oh my God, it's a party time and I'm like, happy Frodo. But really, once he becomes the bearer of the ring, he goes silent and then he spends like, what, the next eight hours of movie barely talking but communicating with his eyes. Yeah. He does so much with his eyes. That's like a silent performance. His eyes are so big. 
and so blue, and they carry all this weight behind him. It's amazing to me that he pulls off still being the emotional center of the movie because you would think there's a world where he kind of disappears. You have these, like, right. flashy, grumpy dwarves. You have hot as hell Viggo Mortensen being super gorgeous. Yeah. You have Christopher Lee, you know, who always wanted to be in this film and wanted to be Gandalf from the beginning and, like, knew Tolkien was like, yo, I'm your Gandalf, right? But then just never came. it never came uh, together. He is utterly fantastic in this He's movie. He's so I mean, fantastic. He, I, I couldn't take my eyes off him this time watching. I was like, wow, he, I love everything about it. Yeah, but yet still... Elijah Wood is the anchor of this movie in a way that Mm -hmm. it's almost astonishing. I really find it astonishing he was able to do it. I think this goes to Peter Jackson feeling so comfortable and confident in this world uh, that he could allow it to be silent. They didn't have to over-talk everything. And I think that the emotion, you know, through music and sound design and just these very archetypical images of good and evil, it looks like you're looking through a a picture book. Like, I've been reading a lot of you know, books with very little words to my kids, and you have to communicate so much on the page. I I just love it. But I have to say Liv Tyler, I think, is fantastic in this movie. When she comes in, she carries herself in a way that I never had seen Liv Tyler be at this point. I was like, wow, it's powerful and cool and badass. And she's just, she's just a great, I, I love that character. Yeah, it's probably just my bad that I can't get over seeing her as so 90s that this, it, she, like, mm-hmm. makes the movie feel older to me. Kind of like, you know that there's this scene, I've noticed this every time I've seen Fellowship of the Ring in the theater, where you see her dad for the first time, Hugo Weaving, where yes. he really like zooms into view. People always laughed at his face. Oh, interesting. Did you ever, did, I don't know if anybody else ever experienced no. that, but I swear people always laughed at that first shot of like him zooming oh. into view over, like it's kind of a crazy camera angle. Yes, I think you're right. I do remember that now. People laughing. I always thought it was because it's like, oh, look, that's the dude from The Matrix. Yeah, and for me, I was like, it's the dude from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which was my favorite movie ever. <laughs> also, just the fact that Liv Tyler as an elf seems very, very different from Kate Blanchett as an elf. Yes. And I don't understand how they're both elves. Well, and I don't understand if there's like two tribes of elves where it's like one is the blonde elves and the other one is the brunette elves. Well, Arwen is a half elf. So that makes her a little bit different. Okay. And I believe that, you know, when they go to Kate Blanchett's town, and I'm sorry I'm not giving you the right name. I think it's, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Lotharin, that is like the fairest kingdom. I think that that's like the most elf you could be is in that kingdom. You can see it by the way it's lit and the way, you know, it, it seems much more magical, whereas Arwen's world was a little bit more woody and tree. Like, I don't know. I mean, look. That makes sense. Like, when we when we go to Kate Blanchett's world in this one, I had this vision of thinking um, this time that I watched it, oh, yeah, I bet James Cameron watched this and was like, God damn it, that's what Avatar should look like. Because it mm. kind of looks like proto-Avatar. You're totally right. I think Avatar really, you know, continues this idea of building worlds, like these big inhabitable worlds. And we also are a real part of the journey. I think, you know, for me, I know a lot about Lord of the Rings because of all the behind-the-scenes footage that you saw on the DVDs and online. You really were brought with Peter Jackson as he was building this world. Yeah, it really felt like this movie was just poured over within an inch of his life for information. Yeah, I actually had a hard time pulling clips, interview clips because everything was done in this like MTV style. Yes. All the documentaries are like, I'm a quote, I'm a quote, quip, quip, quote, quote, quote. And there wasn't that much I could find that was actually... Humans really talking. Well, it's funny, though, because certain things, you know, stick out to my head. Like, I talked to you before about how Viggo Mortensen carried his sword. And the other fact I remembered, and I and I went and Googled it, and I found that it was a true memory, was that um, 
This is the craziest thing. So Sean Bean, who is Boromir, he is scared of heights and he hated helicopter flights. So he refused to take a helicopter and he would hike and climb. It would take him like two hours in costume to get to set. They really were on this journey. Like they just felt like, and maybe this is a, a weird term to use, like this men's men, like we're going to, we'll climb to this set. I, I, I Forgive me for this in advance, yeah. but one does not simply helicopter into Rivendell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, wanted, I actually wanted to point that clip out because, you know, that's a Boromir line. Right. And to me, it's almost surprising how much that line has become a meme since right. Lord of the Rings. Because I don't feel like it was that big of a meme in 2001. It feels like it's become more and more of a well, meme. Actually, I want to play the clip of when he says that really quick. Because I was trying to figure out how did that become such a big deal. And what I noticed is technically they really set that line up to be a big deal. You've got a lot of noise, they drop out all the sound, and then when he says the Mordor line, it just pops. The ring cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloin, by any craft that we here possess. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. All right, so now, Amy, in the past we've talked and you've said, like, you're not one for war movies because you feel like it's almost like the dude's version of, like, a, like a love story or something like that, right? Or, like, I don't want to miss, put words in your mouth, but... I feel that war movies, even taking my emotions out of it, yes, I feel like why they are so important in canons that are, mm-hmm. you know, well, voted on a lot by, sure, like, sure. men and male directors and, you know, the, like the Academy was for yeah. a long time is that war films are where it is safe for men to have all the emotions of, like, a comedy or a friend picture, right. but through the guise of war. So it's not like a wussy lady film. It's a war film. But now, do you think of this like that? Because this movie is or shares many of the tenets of a typical war film. I don't know. I mean, it is, like, a pretty male film, although there are awesome women. Yes, amazing. My mom was always kind of mad, by the way, that they, uh. like— turned the Liv Tyler character from just a cool elf to, like, a fighter elf. She was like, why do you have to make a female character a fighter for her to be more important to the right, story? Of course, yeah, yeah. very annoyed by well, that. Well, there's a certain weird trend in movies right now where I feel like they've just made a lot of women, like, badass fighters but have yet to give them, like, personality. It's like, it's almost like somebody just got half of the note. It's like, no, but she could kick ass. It's like, yeah, yeah, but... There still has to be, like, a character that's interesting, too. It's yeah, like, you're right. It's, it's, like, strong female character, and they just heard strong. Yeah. <laughs> what I remember so much about the casting of Lord of the Rings and, like, reading about it on, on the internet was how upset people were at Kate Blanchett being in this movie. Because really? Galadriel is supposed to be the most beautiful person on Earth, and all these internet dudes were like, Kate Blanchett's just okay. Which offends me more what? and more every day because that I think Kate Blanchett crazy. is the most beautiful woman on the planet. I, I do too. And it's like this otherworldly beauty. And I, I kind of think of like Tilda Swinton as that as well. Like this kind of like, they almost look not of this earth. Like, you know, it's like almost like these porcelain-faced 
uh, people. Yeah, they're angelic. They're yeah. but the terrifying angelic. And I'm gonna pull this clip really quick of Kate Blanchett's character talking to Frodo because I love how they switch from her speaking to voiceover, mm-hmm. and that is an amazing use of voiceover. I know oh, we talk about voiceover yes. being being lazy, but in this example, it, they use it to make her extra just beautiful, terrifying. I know what it is you saw. For it is also in my mind. It is what will come to pass if you should fail. The fellowship is breaking. It has already begun. He will try to take the ring. Also, the way that they set up us really looking at Kate Blanchett when they finally get there after they've escaped from, like, the whole mm-hmm. mountain, blah, 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 blah. They pull off that Spielberg thing where you see everybody's face react to her beauty. Like, the oh, light hits yeah. them and they're like, oh, and he totally just imitates all of that before then the camera finally shows us gorgeous Kate Blanchett. Oh, and by the way, if we're talking about otherworldly beauty, this is one of my favorite things that the film critic Elvis Mitchell wrote about Elijah Wood. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. This is from his review of Fellowship. He said that uh, Elijah Wood, quote, seems to possess the visage that Michael Jackson has spent a lot of money having sculptured by man-made means. Oh, wow. First of all, I thought <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's a type of visage that Michael Jackson is attracted to. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> um, in casting a movie like this, it's really interesting. And I think it's a hard thing to do because you don't want to cast people who feel – of present day, if that makes sense. And I think... Like my quibble with Liv Tyler. I yes. Just, yeah. But I, I think that he did a great job of of even having someone like Sean Astin, who, you know, at certain points has had a very big career, but yet he kind of blends in here. He doesn't feel outside of this movie. Oh, my God. You just reminded me that I had a Sean Astin dream last night. Oh, really? Yeah. Whoa. I had this dream that we were hanging out with Sean Astin. Ooh, this wow. is totally serious. Yeah. And that he had gotten, like, unrecognizable Marlon Brando big. And in my dream, I was really bummed out for Sean Astin. <laughs> and I haven't Googled it. I, I believe that I'm 100% no. wrong yes, about he's all not, of Yes, he has not become Marlon Brando size. I'm so relieved. In my dream, I was really <laughs> depressed. But anyways, talking about Visage, have you heard about the lawsuit involving Lord of the Rings and the president of Turkey? No. Because this Turkish journalist made a meme where he pointed out that President Erdogan looks a lot like Gollum. Okay. And he looks a lot like Gollum. He looks okay. a like Google Erdogan. Erdogan is not a good guy, so I'm okay with everything sure. we're talking about right okay. now. He's really destroying this is like free uh, press and uh, film individualism. He's a censor. He's a nightmare. He's a friend of Trump. He's everything. But anyway, he put this um, these photos up. And there is a law in Turkey where you are not allowed to insult the president. So anyway, there was a whole court case because this man who made this meme was going to go to prison for two years. A Turkish court has posed an interesting question to a group of experts. Is the Lord of the Rings character Gollum good or bad? It may seem like a random question, but it has to do with the case of Dr. Bilgin Çifçe, who compared Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to the pasty fictional creature back in October. This week, a court in western Turkey was unable to find a physical appearance between Erdogan and Gollum. So a judge reportedly asked a group of five experts, including psychologists and a movie expert, to weigh in on whether the comparison was an insult. Wow. Yeah, and do you want to know what happened? What? Do you want to know? Okay, so first he was convicted guilty, and then they were like, hold on, hold on, hold on. And they came up with this new brilliant legal argument. They said that the person in the photos that they were comparing Erdogan to was not Gollum, it was Smeagol. 
because you know wow, that he has two yes. different characters. And even like even like Peter Jackson got involved in this, and he was like, no, 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 no. Smeagol is a joyful, sweet character. He's not insulting the president. Smeagol does not lie. He does not deceive. He does not attempt to Whoa. manipulate others. Those personality traits of being evil, conniving, or malicious belong to Gollum, who should never be confused with Smeagol. That is genius. It's like that's like that's like a John Grisham novel twist at the end. I love that. That's amazing. And I'm 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 also just fascinated that these big leaders around the world are being so threatened by images of fictional characters. I mean, like Xi Ping, and that is the president of China who does not like being compared to Winnie the Pooh. So he has banned all this Winnie the Pooh <laughs> stuff. Uh, and John Oliver has done a lot of stuff about that. But, like, he has banned the use of it because he, I mean, he looks a little bit like Winnie the Pooh. Whoa. <laughs> but I just love, like, the frail egos, like, of these, you know, leaders of gigantic countries. That do not, I am not Winnie the Pooh. I am not Smeagol. <laughs> but talking about these people and these characters, I think that that's the thing that I really love about this movie is the design of these otherworldly characters, whether it is the Balrog or the Nazgul or the orcs. You know, there's something so kind of tangible about some of these characters that are even CGI. I mean, especially when we get into it, you know, Andy Serkis's character, I mean, who has a, a very small role in this movie. You're just seeing a glint of him, you know, Um but it, it, they do something really amazing that they really humanize these CGI characters. And I know they always talk about Uncanny Valley, but I think what Peter Jackson was able to do was they're enough of a character that they feel real without having to look like real people. Yeah, I love all those lines about having pity for, for Gollum. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's just such a beautiful theme in the film to try to have pity yeah. for somebody who has an important role that you don't totally understand. Well, and Gandalf, I think, gives you a humanity to him. I, I feel like that sets you up for a greater appreciation of who he is. It's true. Although I will say there is a little bit of a weirdness in The Lord of the Rings where it's like all the bad guys are like dark and mm-hmm. beastly and animalistic and they act like animals. You know, they scamper and they scream and they don't really communicate that much. They're treated like beasts and they yeah. are horrible orcs. They're monsters. Whereas it gets a little weird that most of the Lord of the Rings heroes have like very pale features and like light blue or green eyes. Right. There's a little bit of, I was thinking a lot of like the Eloy and the Morlocks from the time machine. Mm-hmm. You really see that that split here? Well, I think that what they're showing in a weird way is like the personification of darkness taking over your soul. Because I believe that uh, at one point, and they describe like the orcs as elves that have been corrupted by evil, you know? So they they were these beautiful angelic creatures who've now become these like literal monsters because they've accepted darkness. Yeah, very much that Christian idea, I guess, of like yeah. how devils are angels who just like fell to earth and yeah i mean was it weird for you watching this film and having it start off with this you know great speech from Kate Blanchett where she's talking about how the world is just becoming this dark place i was trying to go back to like 2001 and seeing this film as a kid and thinking oh yeah this movie came out two months after 9-11 right when that felt so true oh yeah because i was thinking wow that feels really true in 2018 and i was then i was making myself remember it felt that true then it probably felt that true in 1938 it probably feels that true a lot yeah i think that's why these classic stories have legs because they're talking about a greater thing that we always feel that there is you know an an overreaching evil or the other shoe's about to drop you know we may be in a good time now but 
get ready because when it comes, it's going to come fast and hard, you know? It's true. And, like, Tolkien was really clear that he did not see this as an allegory at mm -hmm. all. In fact, here he is being really clear that he does not see it as an allegory. Is the book to be considered as an allegory? No. no. I just like allegory whenever I smell it. Do you consider the world declining as the third age declines in your book? And do you see a fourth age for the world at the moment? Our world? Well, the person of my age, you see... He's exactly the kind of person who's uh, lived th through one of the most quickly changing periods of uh, known to history. And that the world is a totally different place now, at a speed. We, everybody feels that. We, uh, anybody who lives over 70 begins to feel that uh, all through history. You can see that they do. But surely never been in 70 years so much change. Oh, surely never. No, this, I mean, one doesn't have to be 70 years old to appreciate this. It's the world which I brought up as a small child. It's interesting, though, because he's basically saying, no, it's not an allegory, but yet it's representative of the world that we live in, or maybe the world that you live in as an older person, looking back at the changes in the world, which I think is an allegory to a certain extent. It's like, but maybe it's cyclical, so it's not necessarily based on something. It's just based on life. Or is it even possible to write something that's not an allegory? Like, is everything you write going to remind you of something that actually happened? Like, I mean, can you can have accidental allegories, right? You can... And look, I mean, look, you saw my, I can, you can put whatever you want on anything. You saw my amazing drug metaphor, which I'm bringing up yet again. Uh, you can, you can, you can imbue everything with, through the lens of today. Yeah. I mean, whether he meant allegory or not, I mean, Tolkien had no idea that we'd be living in this moment in time right now. And yet watching this movie this week, hearing this speech from Gandalf right now, I needed that. And I am so glad that this fantasy book feels real right now. Let's hear him. I wish the ring had never come to me. Wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Maybe we should all just adopt what Frodo adopts, which is that good things happen to you. You grow as a person. You get better when you leave the Shire where everybody's a closed-minded, weird prig dude, and you just go explore and see the world for yourself. You're right, except for one group of people that never leave their Shire. And I'm talking, of course, about the Simpsons in Springfield. Is there a Simpsons clip? There are. I decided to pull one from a newer episode called The Surfsons because it has a cameo from one of my favorite characters, the Ents, the Talking Trees. So technically this is a Two Towers clip. Yeah, I guess so. I guess, okay, we're going to get technical <laughs> about it. Fine. Fine. It's, okay. Asterisks to that. <laughs> but Lisa has been accused of being a witch. She has been taken away into a castle. They're trying to rescue her and they have to get over a wall. Walls cannot stop us. The trees will fight with you. We will never forget your sacrifice. Sacrifice? We could have torn down the castle walls in five minutes. <laughs> trees can't talk, silly. Amy, I think it is time for some year facts. Oh, year facts. Year facts. This is 2001 a period of time where I feel like I was living my best life. You got uh, monthly rent is about $715 a month. The cost of a gallon of gas is $1.46. 
Wikipedia comes online in 2001. Napster is immediately full of orc information. <laughs> Napster is closed down by court order. Um, the Mir space station is decommissioned. Apple Computer releases the iPod this year. If you're going to the movie theater, you're seeing movies like Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. You're seeing uh, The Ring, Monsters, Inc., Shrek, Ocean's Eleven. Even Pearl Harbor came out this year with our friend Liv Tyler, right? She's in mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And uh, popular musicians, you got Weezer, you got uh, Janet Jackson, Destiny's Child. People are watching CSI on TV. They're still watching CSI now. Survivor, Malcolm in the Middle, Ed. Um, it's pretty, you know, this is like a very recent time. I mean, this feels very, you know, connected to us. It's an interesting time for us in society that this comes out two months after 9-11. Like you said, it's, you know. God, I was doing that thing where I was rolling my eyes at all the modern modern movies and stuff. Like, yeah. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> Although, I mean, the Harry Potter thing coming out right when this comes out, I think that is a really good dovetail that we just burst into this gigantic opulent world of fantasy. World of fantasy. Which I think uh, when um, Peter Jackson finally won that Oscar yeah. for Return of the King, when they won, that was the very first time that a fantasy film had ever won Best Picture, ever. I think now you can kind right. of count Shape of Water, I sure. guess, in that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he actually said that fantasy has been the F word in his Oscar speech. Oh, wow. Talking about Harry Potter and thinking about this list and going, do you think that Harry Potter belongs on this list? The AFI, Top 100 list. And this, that's an example of... Uh, the first film that I wouldn't put on this list, but there are other films in that, you know, series that maybe are as good as Fellowship. I don't know. What do you What do you think? I'm asking it without really having an opinion on it. I don't know if I really need a Harry Potter, but it was such a big part, and we do talk about like, well, we have to represent that time, right? But then if we go down that road and we're like, well, we have to represent the last ten years, then we'd have to put a Marvel film on there, and I don't want to do that. So. You wouldn't want to even put Black Panther on that list. I mean, I know that's very early to make that distinction because it's still essentially almost out. Oh God, I'm gonna get in trouble, but I don't think Black Panther is okay. that good. Okay, all right. Ah, sorry, sorry, sorry. We will sorry, save sorry. that conversation for another podcast. I just think Ryan Coogler doesn't know how to direct action scenes in that. It's just, I just think the action scenes are not that good. Okay. I like a lot of it, but... Uh, all right, blah, 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 all right. Blah, blah, blah. So there we go. All right, so back to the original question. I think the Harry Potter books are going to be around for as long as the Lord of the Rings books. I think they've only gained in popularity. I think that the cult of it is just as strong. I think that the movies are very well executed. We may not even see the last incarnations of these films that we've already seen, I could see these being remade in 20 years, like Harry Potter films, you know? Um, And I think especially as you get towards the end, I think from the fourth film on, they really, I don't know, they just kind of take on a life of their own. I I think that that a Harry Potter could be on this list because I feel it is equal to a Star Wars, to a Lord of the Rings. Oh, but you know what? Wait, I wonder this. Do you think the Harry Potter films are even eligible? They're made in America, but they also are so British. And they, you no, know, they've gone back and forth with this British But law. I think it's, I don't know. I think the money is the Warner Brothers. So I feel like that makes it an American film. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. It's a, well, that's well, a head scratch. What about this? This is yeah. clearly not an American film. This is a, you know, I mean, if we take the same True. idea. True. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's just financed by an American entity. I wonder which Harry Potter they even put on the list, though, because I don't think the first one was that good. You, you could have Fellowship go, of the Ring it. My I, favorite ones are in the middle. And when do yes. we ever put just something from the middle of a franchise Well, on that's list? what I think you might see. Like, I think if I was to put one on, I would put The Prisoner of Azkaban, which was directed by Alphonse Cuaron, because I think that that changed the tone 
of the Harry Potter films. The first two are, you know, very childlike. And I think then the tone changes and that shift then takes us all the way to the end of the films. And I feel like that's the one that you would maybe want to look at as, you know, changing the entire direction. Yeah, I can see that. That That's not the one where Robert Pattinson dies, right? That's the one after it? Uh, I believe so, yes. The next yeah. one is the one with Goblet of Fire. That's Yeah, one, yes. those are my two favorites, I yeah. think. And I, I, not, I don't say I like the one where Robert, Robert Pattinson dies because I don't like Robert Pattinson. I think no, he's no, a great actor. Yes. I just like that one because it's really death becoming real. Amy, this movie is universally loved. I mean, like we said, there's a million Simpsons clips. Is there... I don't know, a bad review of it. It's 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is, it is. There are a few bad reviews. I pulled one from The Guardian. I pulled one from Peter Bradshaw, Mm -hmm. who opens with this. The Fellowship of the Ring resembles from certain angles nothing so much as a 178-minute electric mandolin solo. (laughs) (laughs) I love love when when people throw shade like that. Like, (laughs) go ahead, yeah. Unlike Tatooine or Hogwarts or even Camelot, Middle-earth is very self-important, especially when people are deadpanning lines like, by nightfall, these hills will be swarming with orcs. Oh, shut up. In the end, signing up to the movie's whole hobbity Elvis universe requires a leap of faith, a leap very similar to the ones that the characters are always doing across bridges oh, and crumbling ridiculous precipices. You know who wrote this? Peter Bradshaw, it is a leap I didn't feel much like making, and with two more movie episodes like this on the way, the credibility gap looks wider than ever. You know what? I think, and look, you are a critic, and we talk about in the past, like, you know, you said that you like an ambitious failure, disaster. Like, I think that when you go into certain films, you have to know what you're getting. Like, you know, you have to you have to embrace it. Like, I feel like there were a couple of reviews of uh, Avengers Infinity War where, like, they didn't set up any of these characters. Like, yeah, they didn't. If you're not on board, you're not on board. Like, this is a, we're doing a different thing here. Like, I think you just have to, like, set your mind. Like, I mean, for him to be like, oh, it's, it, it, it is melodrama, this movie. It is bigger than life. You know, I don't think this is, like, I don't think it should be played the same way. What, what do you think? I don't know, but I'm just trying to picture how long of an electric mandolin solo I would like. Because <laughs> 178 does seem long, but I could right. imagine maybe, like, 10 Depends minutes. if you're doing something. If you're doing dishes and cleaning the house, yeah. it might be fine. I think that we are in agreement that this definitely belongs on the list. I mean, and it's number 50. Is that too high? Is that too low? What do you think? I mean, I'll be honest. I do feel like this film is on the list because of that Ben Hurry kind of thing. Right. Because it is an achievement. Mm-hmm. You know? More so than the film itself as a whole. Right. But it's a great achievement. It's it's. I love this film. I love this yeah. series. Yeah, and I do feel like it is representative of a couple things that the AFI like. You know, it is epic. It is pushing forward the movie-making uh, machine. You know, I think that you have a lot of imitators after this. And I think it endeavored to do something that had not been done before it. So I, I do believe it belongs there. Maybe, maybe everything above 50 is seminal works that can't be moved. It can't be argued with. And everything below 50 should be movies that have a little bit more of a – General entertainment value, if that makes sense. Like a, I'm saying like maybe there's more of a popcorn flavor to the the bottom 50. I don't know. If they had made this list, say, in the 30s, mm-hmm. maybe people would have been like, King Kong, really? You're going to put that on the list? Yeah. But as we've been talking about in this whole show, King Kong becomes incredibly influential because it influences people like Peter Jackson, who then makes things like this. And maybe, maybe as though the Peter, maybe as though the Fellowship of the Ring is the Gollum, it will have an effect in the world of cinema that we don't even know yet. All right, Paul. All right. I'm going to roll this okahedron. I love it. 
is 14. All right, 14 is Psycho. What? Ooh, I love it. I'm Ooh, very excited about this. Oh, this is excellent for Halloween month. I'm excited. Very exciting. All right. So, Amy, everything we know about the Bates Motel gets a bad rap. You know, clearly someone was murdered there. Actually, a few people were murdered there if you count the sequels. Um, my thought for our call to action this week would be, why don't you give us some of the finer selling points of the Bates Motel? What are, <laughs> what are some of the things that is makes it worth a trip there? You know, what, what are the features that you like that are there? Is it the taxidermy? Or I don't even want to point you in a direction. But if you are trying to sell someone on it, pretend you're a Yelp review and tell us, what are some of the selling points of the Bates Motel? <laughs> Uh, Paul, you are a true psycho. I'm very <laughs> curious what's going to happen with that. Uh, so I'll just give people the numbers. They okay. can call and, and, and tell us their Yelp reviews of the Bates Motel. Uh, the number is 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 for your positive Yelp review of the Bates Motel. All right, so we'll see you next week for... Psycho! That's right. It's available wherever you get movies. I mean, from YouTube to iTunes, it's out there. You're not going to have any trouble finding it at all. See you next week. Psycho!